Welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This week, psychologist Richard Nisbet describes the flawed logic behind the everyday decisions we make. Hello. Can you hear me? Terrific. Um, if psychology has taught us one thing consistently over the last four or five decades, it's that our instincts, our judgments, and our prejudices about the world, and in particular about ourselves, are usually wrong. Richard Dawkins once described our brains as having been essentially designed for watching large or medium-sized objects moving slowly across the savannah. And now those same brains have to deal with Twitter or politicians' illegible tax returns. <laughs> Few scientists have done quite so much to catalogue and to correct these biases as our guest tonight, who is Richard Nisbet, uh, Richard has been the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan for almost a quarter of a century. And over that time, he has been an unyielding champion of critical thought. He's taken a particular interest in the extent to which intelligence is hereditable and to what extent it's down to culture. He's also looked at how minds differ and studied in particular the differences between Eastern and Western traditions of reasoning. His latest book is Mindware, which by complete coincidence happens to be out in paperback at the moment. <laughs> it is uh, in equal parts a compendium of the ways in which we think wrongly and a primer of ways in which that we can think right. And I'm sure he won't mind if by way of completing the introduction I'll just read out a brief passage from towards the end. Um, this book has brought you some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that our beliefs about many important aspects of the world are often sorely mistaken, and the ways in which we acquire them are often fundamentally flawed. The bottom line for all this, our beliefs are often badly mistaken. We're way too confident about our ability to acquire new knowledge that accurately characterizes the world, and our behavior often fails to advance our interests and those of the people we care about. The good news is the flip side of the bad news. You already knew you were fallible before you read this book. You now know much more about what produces your failings and how to compensate for them. So to get you there, I would like to introduce Richard Nesbet. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, I was quite excited to hear that I would be able to talk at the Royal Institution. As you may know, Americans are excited by anything royal. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it's actually a particularly appropriate place for me to speak uh, because I just was reading the charter uh, for the Royal Institution uh, and it was set up for one thing for, quote, teaching the application of science to the common purposes of life. Uh, and that's exactly what I want to talk about. I, mean, I have no interesting findings to tell you about. I just have a, uh, something to tell you about using the tools of science uh, for... Uh, understanding the world that we live in. The Industrial Revolution changed everything. Uh, and by everything, I mean everything. Uh, the wealth of the average European basically did not increase for the 2,000 years before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, our life expectancies are substantially more than double what they were uh, before uh, the Industrial Revolution. So we got healthier and wealthier. Uh, did we get wiser as a result of the revolution? Well, 
I actually, I, I would be happy in a discussion to defend the proposition that we did get wiser, but what I certainly have evidence about today uh, is that we got smarter. Uh, the Industrial Revolution required different kinds of minds uh, than uh, were around at the end of the 18th century, even in the most advanced countries. So the Industrial Revolution absolutely required the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and the more of these other habits of mind that you had, the further you up you would be able to go in the hierarchy of society. So there's actually a good evidence of the sort of hardest kind that psychologists can come up with, that we've gotten smarter. Um, IQ tests started being given early in the 20th century, and between the beginning of the 20th century and the end of World War II, IQs went up by eight or 10 points. That's a very large amount. Since World War II, in the rich countries, uh, IQs have gone up an additional 15 points. Now, that's a standard deviation. To give you an idea of what that means, someone who scored 100 uh, in 1946 uh, would score 85 today. So instead of being average, that person would be dull normal. Someone who scored today 115 uh, would, uh, would have been considered a genius uh, by standards of 1946. Well, you might ask, um, okay, that's IQ tests, but IQ tests aren't exactly the same thing as intelligence, and I would agree that's true. IQ is not the same thing as intelligence, it's not. But IQ tests certainly test things that we would want to call intelligence. Uh, if you ask um, a child who's taking an IQ test, why do doctors go back and get an education? The child who can tell you the answer to that question is smarter than one who can't. He's been able to figure out the world enough to, to be able to answer that. Um, a child who can answer the question, how are revenge and forgiveness alike, uh, is smarter than a child who can't answer that question. Vocabulary has increased uh, by a standard deviation, equal to 15 IQ points uh, over that period of time. And the more words you have, the more concepts you have, the more concepts you have, the smarter you are. So how did this happen uh, exactly? Well, um, the basic story is pretty simple. Uh, school, uh, more school uh, and better school. And at the turn even of the 20th century, only a few years of gram grammar school was typical of the average person, even in the rich countries. Today, 40% of British and Americans uh, have a tertiary degree, vastly more time spent in school, 10 or 12 years spent in school. It would be surprising if that didn't result in people getting smarter. School has improved. It was un understood at the turn of the 20th century uh, that uh, you couldn't teach calculus uh, to university students until senior year. That was about the first, earliest they'd be ready for it. And today, of course, it's routinely taught in high school. So the Industrial Revolution demanded that we have different minds, and it succeeded in that to a remarkable extent. It continues, by the way, in most countries today. 
It started in even the least developed, almost all of even the least developed countries. It continues to increase in Britain and the US. There is one area of the world where it's no longer increasing, which is quite interesting uh, what that area is. But I guess what the answer to it, the why there's been no continuing change, is Scandinavia. Uh, and I think it's likely that it, this is the case because Scandinavia just does a better job than the rest of us at bringing up the bottom, about giving every opportunity to people at the bottom. So those, those folks are, uh, uh, they've achieved about what we can achieve at the current level of what we're teaching in these industrial revolution skills. But beginning roughly in mid-20th century, we've got a new, we got a new revolution, namely the information revolution which is about data, not things. And there are sharp requirements of being able to live effectively in the, uh, in the in revolution, in the uh, information era. We have to be able to collect data, have to be able to code data. That means what is this data? How can I give a number to it? Um, have to be able to analyze data. Uh, have to be able to manipulate the environment so as to generate reliable information. Um, you uh, have to be able to appraise arguments uh, based on data. And you have to be able to choose between possible courses of action based on data. Now, the tools required for that are the same tools as the Industrial uh, Revolution required, uh, but a whole lot of other ones as well namely statistics, probability theory, scientific methodologies, sophisticated epistemologies, and decision theory. For statistics and probability theory, the concept of a sample of a population of sample bias, randomness, law of large numbers, normal distribution, standard deviation, statistical significance, regression to the mean, base rate, and correlation. In many occupations today, if you don't understand those things uh, reasonably well, you can't function effectively. And what I want to argue today is, if you don't understand those things, you can't function effectively in your daily life. For scientific methodology, the bare minimum is concept of the control group, randomized control experiment, confounded variable, self-selection, independence of observation versus dependence of observation, the concept of a natural experiment and how to discover them, uh, and artifact. Uh, in decision theory, cost-benefit analysis, the concepts of opportunity cost and sunk cost, and the notion of loss aversion, uh, and how not to mess yourself up by finding loss so aversive. In roughly the beginning of the 70s, psychologists started showing our weaknesses with these things. Kahneman and Tversky are the most famous names associated with this, showing how these kinds of principles, uh, because people don't understand them or because they're unable to apply them, causes them to get all kinds of problems wrong. I'm sure most of you know some of these kinds of examples. If you tell a University of Michigan freshman that there is a town with two hospitals one with about uh, 50 births per day and one with about 15 births per day, and then ask at which of these hospitals do you think there would be more days in the year on which 60% or more of the babies born were boys? 
about half people will tell you it doesn't make any difference. Uh, of the remainder, about half will say it's the larger hospital that would have more such days, and about half will say it's the smaller hospital that would have more such days. What's missing is concept uh, that everyone here is then familiar with, but we just don't know how to apply across the infinite range of situations where it's necessary. So uh, that law says that the sample values resemble population values, and in the case of this problem I just gave, the presumed population value is 50%. So sample values resemble population values uh, as a direct function of their size and an inverse function of the expected error associated with each observation. Uh, and you have to think of observations. This is not common for us to do this, but every single observation that you might make, the distance from here to Pluto, a person's height, uh, a person's attitude uh, toward a political candidate, uh, can be thought of as an observation which is composed of true score, which is the, what's really the case with Pluto as God sees it, as God measures, plus error associated with it. And we have a good conception of error for a lot of things. Uh, we know that the est height estimates, are, you would never bother to measure someone's height twice. I mean, once is enough that it's, uh, the error is very slight. Probably the same is true for the distance uh, to Plato, but all kinds of other observations that we make in everyday life, we treat as if we're getting the true score. Uh, I mean, nature wouldn't kid us. I've got the true score. No conception of error, which could be throwing us off enormously. Uh, so I'm going to talk about six of these tools today. You've heard of them all. You probably use some of them in your work. Uh, but you don't use them for a fraction of the relevant problems in everyday life that you encounter. We're not nearly as smart uh, as we could be or as we're going to be. Suppose I told you uh, I have uh, a friend uh, who's a business executive and recently he interviewed someone for a manager position and this person uh, had a great record in his previous jobs. He had splendid recommendations from prior employers. But my friend interviewed him, and he didn't seem to have any interesting uh, commentary to make on my friend's business. It just didn't seem too sharp, so my friend went back to his colleagues and said, I don't think we should pursue this guy, I just don't think he's um, material for us. Now, we said, well, that's totally commonplace, ordinary event. Uh, are you going to tell us there's something wrong with that, Professor? <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, compare that to a case of a university football coach who goes to visit practice uh, by a particular player, a forward, who's been extremely highly recommended by his coaches uh, and has a great uh, scoring record. But he observes this kid during the practice, and the kid just... <laughs> fails to make some goals he should have made. He just doesn't seem in control of the ball. And he goes back to his uh, fellow colleagues and he says, I, I don't think we should pursue this guy, I just don't think he's material for us. Now that probably rings a bell, wait a minute. Is that a great decision? Uh, and of course, it wouldn't be a great decision. And it wouldn't be a great decision because we understand 
the concept of observations equal true score plus error when it's applied to sports. <laughs> uh, we are, because we see it all the time. Uh, we see the star who usually makes uh, 15 points uh, per basketball game makes two uh, tonight. Next week, uh, he makes uh, 30. Uh, there's lots of error around any athletic performance. That's captured in the U.S. for our, what we call football, uh, by the idea that on any given Sunday, any team in the National Football League can defeat any other team. You understand it there. We don't understand it with interviews. Why don't we understand it with interviews? Because nobody does that many interviews, not that many. You just don't see that many people in interview situations, and, you don't, and you're certainly not keeping track of how well they did, how well each of these people did in their interviews, and how well they did in, the, uh, uh, in your company. And then following them, uh, the people you didn't hire, and seeing how they did in their companies. We don't, we don't do that. So it's not, in a sense, it's not our fault uh, that we don't understand that the interview is such a bad guide. Uh, well, is the interview such a bad guide? Yes, it's astonishingly bad. The correlation between interview ratings and performance in college, uh, on, in any business where it's been examined, performance as a physician, performance as a military officer, uh, the correlations run 0.1. So what do you have to do to get this right? Uh, you have to frame the problem is one of observations plus error, and you have to remind yourself everywhere in life that human behavior observations are subject to substantial error. Now, we understand that, as I say, perfectly well with sports. Uh, we did a study where we asked uh, University of Michigan students to tell us what they thought the odds were uh, that if Billy got a hired a grade on a spelling task than Bobby, that he would also, at the next spelling test, get a higher grade. And we also, and we also ask about basketball. Joan got a higher score than Jane at one basketball game. What's the likelihood she would at the next? Uh, and then we ask about 20 events. Billy uh, scored higher than Bob on the average of 20 spelling tests uh, during the year, what's the likelihood that he would in another 20? The odds, 20 odds and 20 evens. Uh, and here are the results, what people thought, reported in correlation terms. Uh, correlations run from minus one to plus one. Zero means no relationship whatsoever. Plus one means a perfect relationship. Uh, in this case, it would mean if you thought that the correlation was one, you would say, well, if he got a higher grade on one test, he's certain to get a higher grade on the next test. But these are reported in correlation terms. Uh, and notice that people's guesses about, that's combining basketball and spelling, their guesses just happen to be right on the money. They're exactly right about how much error is expected from these kinds of observations. They also understand that you get much stronger association between 20 scores and 20 other scores than between one score and one score. 
they don't understand the extent to which that's true. Uh, it actually goes up to a near certainty. If, if Billy got, I mean, we have the data on these. We know that. We know what's going on here. If one kid gets a, a higher score on 20 tests, uh, the odds are absolutely overwhelming uh, that uh, that kid will get uh, a higher score on the next batch of 20 tests. Let's take another case where the law of large numbers uh, might matter. Um, how much agreement uh, would you expect between any two reviewers for a psychology article? And soft psychology, my kind of psychology, uh, for the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Uh, what would you think the odds would be if, inter if reviewer A gave Jones's paper a higher score than Johnson's paper, what are the odds that uh, reviewer B uh, would do the same? How about between two reviewers, physicists, who are reviewing solid-state physics proposal for the Ni National Science Foundation? How many people think that the, correlate, that the association there would be, you'd only, only a 60% chance that if physicist A ranks this one over that one, that physicist B will do the same. Actually, the correlation in both cases is the same. It's 0 0.3. <laughs> uh, which means you've gone from a coin flip of 50-50 to about 56 or 7%. Uh, now, what, what would you think it would be for evaluations of business models by potential investors? So, I can't entertain you with the answer, I don't know, but I do know that I spent some time with uh, folks in a hedge fund who really impressed me as being extremely bright people who really were doing their business quite well in many ways, but they only had two people uh, judge uh, the, um, each business proposal. If you increase the number of in, the reliability that is, the odds that you'll get the same answer from both, uh, go up as a function of the number of, of the square root of the number of cases. If something is really important to you, you really got to have a, 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 a good judgment about this. You got to ask a lot of people for anything that's at all subjective, even things that seem subject, objective, like solid states physics proposals. <clears throat> um, in the U.S., uh, basket, baseball is uh, very popular, uh, and uh, it turns out that the, the best player of the so-called freshman players, first year in pro ball games, is very rarely the best player the next year. And this phenomenon has a name, it's called the sophomore slump. We have a similar kind of concept for second novels, right? The difficult second novel is a great First novel, second novel, it just you know hit that jinx of this or of the album. Great first album, second one's not so terrific. Now, people will give for baseball and for everything else causal explanations till the cows come home. They'll say, well, the pitchers make the necessary adjustments, or well, the guy gets so cocky and you know he uh, falls off his game because he's not paying attention. Um, but let's think for a minute about. Uh, how it is that that best freshman ball player gets to be 
the best freshman ball player. Well, by having more talent, for sure, than the average player, but he's way out there. And to get way out there, he not only has to have a tremendous amount of talent, everything else had to go right. He got particularly good coaching the first three or four games. As it happened, he just did great and built confidence. He got engaged to the girl of his dreams. The next year, the great dice roller in the sky gave him an elbow injury that kept him out for the first three weeks, uh, and his uh, fiance uh, ditched him. <laughs> Somebody else got the dice rolls uh, that second year. This is just another way of saying all observations can be thought of as true score plus error, and there is error around a base baseball score. If you ask people this, think there's no error? Well, of course there's error. Well, look, if there's error, then somebody who's way the hell out there has got to be expected to come back in. And, and this principle is called the regression to the mean, which is happening around us all the time, and we're largely blind to nearly all the cases of it that are uh, being presented to us every day. Extreme observations of events are likely to be followed by less extreme observations of the same type of event to the extent that there is variation, error, for observations of the type in question. And when we're going from one dimension to another dimension, uh, this is especially true. Predictions for events of one kind based on observations of another kind have to take into account the degree of correlation between the two kinds of events. My God, just this gesture seems to have... <laughs> uh, my favorite example of regression to the mean uh, is uh, told by Danny Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He spoke here a while back. Um, uh, he was talking to uh, pilot trainers in the military. And he said, you know, psychologists have discovered that the best way to teach people something is to uh, emphasize their good performance, tell them why it's good, uh, and to de-emphasize the bad performance. Not as useful to tell them why performance was bad. Pandemonium breaks out in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Professor, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to uh, pilot training. We found that if a guy makes a really excellent maneuver uh, and we praise him for it, odds are it's not as good next time. It made it worse. If he does something really terrible, we scream at the son of a gun, he does better the next time. <laughs> In psychotherapy, there is a, something called the hello-goodbye effect. People come in, they're a wreck, they're a mess, they're miserable. They go out and they're fine, things, things are swell. So think about it this way, the, 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 the difficult second novel or the, the jinx in, in the albums. Uh, if someone's second novel was terrific and the first one had not been so good, would you say, Gee, I guess he was subject to the freshman jinx. Uh, not likely. It's only because we have an interesting case of extreme excellence. We have no recognition that we have no right to expect that the second uh, score is going to be as high. Recently, uh, the Insurance Institute of America 
uh, did a study of the safety of automobiles. They reported on the deaths per uh, model year of each of a huge number of car autos. Uh, and they find such things as the, the Ford pickup. There are enormously more deaths per vehicle year uh, associated with the uh, uh, driving the, the uh, Ford pickup than there are the Volvo station wagon. So you ask most people, why do you suppose that is? And they say, well, you know, I've heard about these Volvos, how safe they are. It's probably true. But I have a quiz for you. See if you can match the driver with the auto. <laughs> we don't hand out autos at random. We don't say, Billy, you'll be driving a lovely powder blue station wagon. <laughs> uh, so uh, the problem here is called self-selection. The subject chooses not only the subject's level on a given variable, gets a, a Volvo station wagon, but the level on a host of other variables that are correlated with that variable. Safer drivers tend to buy Volvos uh, than buy Ford pickups. Um, but actually, the self-selection problem makes more sense, although it's a little odd to say it, when applied to the auto in this case. It's as if the auto selects the driver. And not only selects the driver, but also selects the the number of miles driven per year, and selects uh, the, uh, the conditions uh, under which uh, the auto is driven. Uh, and if you have self-selection, if, if you learn nothing else tonight, because <laughs> this is the thing I most, I most care about, please learn the concept of self-selection. If you measure something about a person, and you now know what that, you have an idea of what that person's score is on that, Bear in mind that, that he's selected that, that score, not you. And any number of other things can vary as well. This becomes particularly important, and I guarantee you, you have read many, many findings like this. Men who take vitamin E uh, have a lower likelihood of prostate cancer. Now, the thing about that is that men who take vitamin E uh, are going to differ in all kinds of other ways from men who don't take vitamin E. They're going to have a higher social class uh, on average, more likely to know that they ought to take vitamins. Uh, they're uh, uh, more likely to have the money to go out and buy vitamins. They probably have a better diet because if they're bothering to take vitamins, they probably care about their health enough to watch their diet and their cholesterol and their blood pressure and they probably exercise. Um, this actually has a name now in epidemiology. It's called uh, the healthy user bias because people who do things that sound healthy do other things that sound healthy. You're not going to find out whether vitamin E is good for you or bad for you until you do the, the randomized control experiment. Flip a coin, see who gets the experimental treatment and who gets the control, and you measure the outcome. Now, through the miracle of random assignment, you know uh, that on average, subjects in one condition are identical to those in another. Every guy who's very rich, there's somebody else in the control group who's also rich, everybody who has a lousy diet in the experimental group, there's someone in the uh, 
control group who also has a lousy diet. So once you do this experiment, you can now find out what is the effect of vitamin E on prostate cancer. And the answer is vitamin E makes prostate cancer more likely. Now, people who do purely correlational studies where they're not doing the manipulating, they're just doing measuring, will say they've got this problem handled. They apply something called multiple regression analysis. And what this means is that they examine the association of uh, each of a number of independent variables with a dependent variable, net of the association between every other variable uh, and the dependent variable. Another way of putting this is to say the correlation of, they look at the correlation of X and Y controlling for, subtracting out all the correlation between uh, all variables that are correlated with both X and Y. Uh, and in theory, that is a way that you can get rid of this problem. And I can point to cases where multiple aggression and regression analysis applied in this way will get you uh, the right answer. But often you can't identify all such variables. I mean, how many things might be different between people who take vitamin E and people who don't? There are a limitless number. And anybody who thinks that you tells you they can limit is just blowing through his hat. You can't can't identify all variables. Of those that you do uh, identify, you often can't measure them. Or even if you can measure them, uh, it can be very difficult. Or you know, how exactly should you, should you measure? Control, they'll tell you, epidemiologists will say, I control for social class. Well, you did. how did you do that? Uh, did you look at um, the money, amount of money people make? Or did you, like, did you look at the prestige of their occupation? Uh, or did you look at their educational level? Those are all ways that are correlated with anything we would want to call social class. Uh, or would you use some combination of those? And if so, what, how do you combine them? It turns out that in these epidemiological studies, uh, it matters hugely sometimes. I'd like to be able to tell you, I'm a social psychologist, I'd like to say I, I know how to measure social class. Actually, I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's the best way to measure social class. Uh, and it's meaningless to say you control for variables with missing values. How many old ladies drive pickups? I mean, the, the, institute, the Insurance Institute assured us not to worry about any possible artifacts in their findings because they controlled for age and gender. Uh, both of the guys who drove, who drove Volvo station wagons had no accidents. And that's the way, in effect, the way they controlled for that. Um, in 2007, when uh, uh, shortly after Barack Obama uh, declared for the presidency, he was invited to have a discussion with Google employees. And the first question that the CEO, Eric Schmidt, uh, asked him was, uh, what's the best way to sort uh, um, 30 million integers? Uh, and Obama said, uh, well, I think the bubble sort would be the wrong way to go. Eric Schmidt hit his forehead, and the audience broke out into applause, because in fact, that was the correct answer. And Obama then went on to say that he believed in evidence, uh, he believed in science, and he would govern accordingly. 
uh, and in the audience that day, there was a man named Dan Soroker who decided to go to work for Obama. Uh, as he put it, he had me at bubble sort. Uh, and uh, there are uh, a couple of, of several things that Google believes that uh, I think we should all believe. They have a derisory term for how businesses make most of their decisions, um, which is you get the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> but there's nearly always a better way, and that's A-B testing, where you just do the experiment, use a blue border, use a red border, which gets the most clicks. Um, and uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, Soroker did for Obama. Um, he'd just say, well, which combination of image and text gets the most clicks? Is it the turquoise uh, portrait? Is it a black and white picture of the family? Or is it a five-second video of Obama giving a talk? Or is it learn more, uh, join us now, or sign up now? I find that I'm just without intuitions about these things. You may or may not. But another expression they have around uh, Google uh, is assumptions tend to be wrong. Uh, and uh, the first people to really, really know this were social psychologists. <laughs> assumptions about human behavior, especially human behavior in novel situations, tend to be wrong. As it turns out, the most effective thing is the black and white photo and the legend, learn more. It's actually 40% more effective than, uh, than the worst uh, combination. That can translate into a lot of money uh, and a lot of votes. A couple of anecdotes uh, to end with. Uh, I don't have much time to talk about uh, decision analysis. Uh, many, many years ago, my wife and I bought uh, a summer cottage. Uh, and we were absolutely at, at the end of our finances. We didn't have enough to buy furniture. So I decided I'll build the furniture. For some people, uh, that would be a good idea. <laughs> I was the kind of kid who always had parts left over after I built the model. Uh, so I said, well, I'll, I'll go take a class. So I went and took a class in woodworking. And at the end of 15 hours, I had a box, um, and dawns on me, this is just not the way to do it. I was not paying attention to the fact that I was paying a huge opportunity cost for trying to make my own darn furniture. Here's the way economists think about the world. It's a kind of depressing uh, that everything you do has alternatives, and everything you do actually has a best alternative, and that best alternative is the opportunity cost of doing whatever it is you decided to do. In my case, uh, there were millions of things that I would rather have done uh, than, uh, than make my own darn furniture. And the smart thing to have done would be to, to do what we actually did do, which was uh, live pretty low on the hog for several months, bought dirt cheap furniture, and as we got richer, we got better furniture. You need to frame actions as potential costs. Is this the optimal thing to be doing now? What costs are being paid for it? What else could I do that would cost less or benefit me more? Now, uh, that all sounds pretty straightforward, but the problem is recognizing it. Suppose you bought a ticket 
uh, to a football game a month ago, paid 100 pounds for it. And tonight's the night, but the star is not playing. Nothing really depends on the outcome, and it looks very much like it's going to rain. If you ask most people, what, what, what do you think you would do, go to the game or not? Most people say, God, I, I would hate to waste that 100 pounds, to which the economist would say, honk, wrong. You can't waste it. It's gone. Uh, you can pay twice. You can pay once for the ticket and once for the tedium. Uh, <laughs> now, this is not going to get you very far because you need a psychologist at the other elbow for something like this. Because you can frame it and say, yeah, it's true, I know I can't get it back, but it hurts. It produces what social psychologists call cognitive dissonance. Uh, and to reduce that cognitive dissonance, you say, you know, lots of times I've gone uh, to games, I wasn't expecting much, and they turned out to be really pretty interesting. That might happen now. The psychologist will say, here, here's the thought experiment you do. Suppose you hadn't bought the ticket. A friend calls you up and says, I have tickets for the, for the football game tonight. Uh, do you want to go? If the answer uh, would be, yes, um, I, would, I would. I'll be right over. Then by all means, go to the game. But if the answer would be, you've got to be kidding. The star is not playing. Nothing depends on the outcome. It looks like it's about to rain. Then you don't go. Uh, so you have to... Pretend the resource had not been expended, would you still do this thing? One thing that has struck me, and I've been doing research on this for a very long time, what struck me is how well folks did in the Industrial Revolution with getting people the cognitive skills that they needed. In 1760, uh, in uh, Britain, hardly anyone uh, could read and write. Uh, by 1840, 70%. Uh, of British could read and write. Uh, all of the other tools that I can identify that are important to function in the Industrial Revolution are out there, they're being learned, there have been huge changes. I see almost no change in people's ability to use the very tools that they may have learned in their profession. So uh, we're going to be seen, I think, as ignorant and befuddled uh, by our great-grandchildren. I hope. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for an extremely interesting hour. I'd like to open up with a question from the audience. Yes, please. Do you mind waiting until the microphone gets to you, please? You said in psychotherapy there's a hello and goodbye. Could you explain what that is, please? Oh, right. A lovely example, which you couldn't possibly have understood because I didn't give the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Psychiatrists say, psychotherapists say, the hello goodbye effect is because when they come in, they want to say how terrible they are, they want your help, and they want to make things sound really awful so that you'll help them. At the end, they want to be ingratiating. So they say, ah, oh, it's terrific. Well, it's a causal interpretation for a phenomenon that would have to be the case. It has to be the case that people really are worse on their way in than they are on their way out if all the doctor does is give them a sugar pill placebo because people go to psychotherapy when they're in bad shape. And odds are, if you do nothing at all, they'll be better later. 
Uh, I mean, your doctor has a huge advantage because nearly everything he's done for you resulted in your survival. <laughs> Would um, anybody in the middle section like to ask a question? Right at the front here, please. Um, you gave the example of two physics pa a physics paper evaluated by two reviewers, and there is very little correlation uh, as to how they review it in, in other disciplines the same. Now, this is really quite worrying if there is no objective level for these things. But even more worrying is, uh, say, people who govern us, you know, like in government, do, when they evaluate situations, is there, how do they make decisions and are, 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 do they make the best decisions? Well, uh, I think we all know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what are some of the ways that decisions can go wrong? There's a wonderful book by a social psychologist named Irving Janis who gave rise to, you probably heard the term, how many people have heard the term groupthink? Yeah. He gave rise to the term. He looked at the way uh, political leaders made various decisions. He looked at some really terrible decisions, like Kennedy's Bay of Pig decisions, to send in 2,000 troops into Cuba uh, with no air support, uh, which was just astonishingly bad decision. And he looked at good decisions made by those same people. So he looked at a couple of excellent decisions that were made by Kennedy uh, and so on to find out what some of the differences are. One of, the main difference, one of the main differences is that uh, almost surely a part of the problem with Kennedy's Bay of Pig decision, it came very early on. The military presents their plan, you know, and people are nervous, they don't want to speak up. It's air cover. Uh, so they're trying to maintain their prestige. They, you know, it's, it's risky. What am I? I'm an economist. I'm going to criticize the general. Uh, so... Uh, Kennedy actually instituted something which could be used by every uh, decision-making body. He appointed, and the, which actually the first use of it, so far as I know, comes from the Vatican, uh, and the term there is the devil's advocate. Uh, so you, he appointed someone to be the critic, and he had, no matter what is suggested, I want you to, to say what's wrong with it. Um, so that's one kind of way that decisions go wrong. We have something called Head Start in the U.S., uh, which is a program for poor minority kids, a uh, pre-K uh, program. Uh, and uh, it was started 50 years ago. $200 billion have been spent, and we have no idea whether it has any effect because there's never been random assignment to condition. We do know that almost certainly programs differ a lot in quality and in type of thing that goes on. Some may well be doing good, but we can't know because there wasn't random assignment. Uh, on 9-11, 9,000 grief counselors uh, who descended on New York to help folks out. Grief counseling is uh, a very reasonable sounding thing to me. You get a small group of people, they tell what their experiences are, what their feelings are. The leader assures people that, uh, uh, that these feelings are normal and that in the not-too-distant not future, they're going to be uh, much better off. Um, this actually increases the length of distress, a uh, period of distress somewhat for people. 
Uh, who knows why? Assumptions tend to be wrong. Sounds like a great idea to me. It's not. Uh, there, was, uh, there were some prisoners in New Jersey a while back who decided that they would like to take at-risk youth and tell them how horrible it is in prison. So they brought junior high kids in. Uh, so, and you can't believe it's incredibly boring. The food is horrible. There's constant fighting. There's sexual abuse and so on. Uh, this increases the likelihood that these kids will commit crimes. <laughs> it's been estimated that they, uh, for every dollar spent on what are called scared straight, you know, people familiar with that term, scared straight? Few. Every dollar spent on scared straight uh, costs society $100, $140 in uh, incarceration costs and crime costs. So uh, our societies are not making decisions on the basis of these. Anyone on this side? Yes, at the back. As you spoke at the beginning of a lot about people being smart or smarter, do you make a distinction between smartness, intelligence, wisdom, and cleverness? Yes, I do. Uh, I actually have started studying wisdom, uh, and uh, it came from my study of Eastern versus Western ways of reasoning, and they are quite dramatically different in some important respects. Um, Westerners are very good at logic, at analysis, at categorization, uh, and um, uh, but they they miss a, a, they make a lot of errors because they don't do something that's more characteristic of Easterners, which is to pay much more attention to context. Um, it, the, the simplest demonstration we have of this is if you show uh, Japanese and Americans 20-second videos of underwater scenes, and then you turn it off and you ask, ask them, what did they see? The Americans will say, I saw three big fish swimming off to the left. There were, they had white bellies with pink stipples on them. The Japanese will almost invariably start by saying, with context, I saw what looked like a stream. The water was green. There were rocks and shells on the bottom. There were three big fish swimming off to the right. They actually produce 60% uh, more information about context than the Americans do at no cost to what they're able to do for the most uh, salient object. Uh, but Americans are just, and if you look, if you put gizmo on people, it will show where they're looking at a picture. The Americans are looking at, at the central object. The, the uh, Asians are looking at the object context, object context, object context. And they literally remember the object in context so that if, if you show Americans an object that they have seen before uh, in a different context and ask them if they've seen it, they're just as likely to be correct as if you show it to them in the original context. But it throws the Japanese off. If you show that object in a different context, that's something different. That's not the object they saw. They saw the object in a particular context. But the point is much more general than this because they're much more attentive to con historical context, temporal context. They're much more attuned to uh, social cues uh, than Westerners. And a lot of this, as far as I'm concerned, it counts as wisdom. So we started looking at uh, uh, people's responses to uh, 
questions about social conflict, uh, societal conflict and individual conflict. Uh, and uh, the individual conflict were drawn from the advice columns. Uh, Dear Abby, it is in the US. We literally just used those columns. And then we scored them for things like um, perspective taking, do they take more than one perspective? Uh, do they come up with, uh, do they assume that things are probably going to change, which I think is wiser than just assuming that it's going to be static? Uh, do they, uh, do they uh, recognize uh, possibilities for compromise uh, in conflict and so on? And the first thing we found, we did the study first with Americans, is that Americans get wiser as they get older. And believe it or not, this is the only study that actually shows that. <laughs> Other people sh show it, but they look at their, <laughs> the populations, they look at a bunch of university freshmen and some old folks knitting doilies, in a, and, and they find that, <laughs> sometimes they find they're wiser, usually they don't. We did a random sample, and if you don't do a random sample, you can't answer that question. So we did find that Americans get wiser. Young Japanese are substantially wiser than young Americans uh, by these measures. Um, but they don't get wiser as they get older. From 25, age 25 to age 75, they get no wiser. Now, why is this? I think it's because East Asian society uh, emphasizes harmony getting along, reducing conflict, finding compromise, and so on. This is part of the socialization of young Japanese, so they really are, are wiser than Westerners are. Uh, Americans don't get that. Uh, we keep making mistakes, creating conflicts, and handling conflicts badly, but we do learn from it. So, and actually, 75-year-old Americans are just as wise as 75-year-old Japanese, but they sure got there a lot quicker. So. <laughs> We have time, I think, for one last question. You said that um, you should involve lots of people in making investment decisions, but anyone who's been in committees with lots of people find that they're terribly inefficient. So how do, how do you structure a, an effective investment right. or a decision-making body? Right. Well, actually, this um, hedge fund that I went to I thought it was the best decision-making procedure I'd ever seen uh, because they, they would get the two most expert people to, to make their evaluations of a particular thing. And they're constantly, if you've got two people, you're going to get a larger set of questions raised on average than would be the case if there was just one person, so they're asking more questions, they're entering into a dialogue, which is almost surely going to... I mean, I'm often it, finding that I, what I believe is wrong because I hear myself saying it to someone, say, oh, no, that's, that's... And even if the other person doesn't recognize it, which the other person may, in which case is a double benefit. So there's that. And then they present their analysis and the reasons for it to the entire group. It's a group of about 15 people. Uh, so they can bring in expertise from various ways. I, I can't tell you how superior that is to the way uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Mental Health make their decisions about grant proposals. Uh, it's, um, the National Institute of Health has two people and only people, only two people, and in my field, 
the decision is then made not just by social psychologists, but by anthropologists and sociologists and who, who are, you know, and I've literally heard one, one say once, uh, oh, I, I thought there was, I thought, I like the name on this proposal, I'm going to vote for it. <laughs> um, I mean, that, so um, there, are, there are much superior ways. More people is almost always going to be. Other things equal more people is better than less people. Well, I hope that this evening has left you, if not smarter than certainly wiser to our collective cognitive bad habits. Please join me in um, thanking Professor Nisbet. Thank you. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, Professor Steve Jones takes a look at the history of science during the French Revolution. <laughs>